This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. This is no place for a child. Wherever I go, he goes. So I've heard. This is the way. Season 2 of Disney Plus series The Mandalorian recently earned a remarkable 24 Emmy nominations, including for its cinematography, production design, and visual effects. In this episode, we're joined by visual effects supervisor Richard Bluff and production designers Andrew L. Jones and Doug Chang. Bluff and Jones won Emmys a year ago for their work on the series, and visual effects and production design veteran Doug Chang is a 1993 Oscar winner for the visual effects in Death Becomes Her. In this episode, they join us to discuss the making of The Mandalorian Season 2 using their latest advanced virtual production techniques. I also asked them about the DH Mark Hamill that appeared in the season finale, but they declined to discuss this work. This episode focuses primarily on the episode titled The Jedi, which is set on the planet Corbis and earned the production design nomination. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. So welcome, congratulations on the season and your Emmy nominations. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. So the making of the series relied heavily on virtual production techniques, which is still a relatively new concept for many people. So for the uninitiated, um, Richard, would you begin by describing the process and why filmmakers are turning to these tools? Well, it's interesting. I I think a lot of the tools that that we use um, started out life actually a long time ago. You can kind of trace a lot of what we do back to AI, Um, obviously. Uh, shows like uh, Avatar and, and and Jungle Book that John Favreau obviously worked on and, uh, and and Lion King. So I think what's different about our show is the amount of the tools that we pull together, but also the fact that it all ends up uh, largely on a on our wraparound LED screens. Um, I think the the uh, the important part of of why we use it is I think that that John likes to uh, get everybody immersed in virtual reality to experience what the sets and the environments are going to be before we ever photograph them um, and to understand if from a design perspective if they're large enough if they're small enough 
and if they they you know invoke the the right sort of uh, a response from the actors and uh, and obviously from the from the creatives themselves and to give everyone an idea so when you're shooting on this stage um the actors are performing in front of this led screen that how large is it roughly so the the volume that we've got it uh is 90 feet long 75 feet wide and roughly egg-shaped and then it's 23 feet tall there's a led ceiling panel that covering the entire ceiling uh, and we have a couple of doors that come in to, to, to uh, that, that allow us to get sets in and out and uh, uh, co- complete the complete the 360 environment, the immersion. So in the in the episode, the Jedi, uh, the Mandalorian, and Grogu visit the forest planet of Corvus. So before we talk about uh, how it's applied in virtual production, let's talk about the design of the planet itself. I, I mean, I'm sure the research started with the material itself, but would, would you talk about um, any research that you did and how you conceived the look? Yeah, that started um, very early on with Dave because he was very keen on sort of creating a very desolate landscape. And now specifically story driven. So we always start with sort of the story and character intent. From there, I mean, you know, unfortunately we had, you know, fires in the Northern California and some of them were very close to Dave's home. And so that kind of drew the inspiration in terms of this desolate landscape, because he really wanted to create an environment that has been devastated by our main character that's here. So we referenced a lot of that, did obviously a lot of research into what devastated landscape can look like. And we also lean into quite a bit of Kurosawa's films as well, because, you know, in this one, the tone of it for Dave, he was trying to match some of that uh, to sort of draw from the original inspiration that inspired George Lucas. And so we really heavily researched into that, and then we kind of adapted it to make it our own. And so, for instance, the castle itself, uh, you can see, is very reminiscent of Japanese uh, feudal castles. And we did that specifically to invoke those feelings. Uh, and then the landscape, you know, um, literally was, you know, taken off of, you know, photography that we did of um, the burnt forests around Northern California. And it was really then a matter of them merging the two aesthetics to create this very exotic environment that would help support the character. We did actually go out to the burnt fields, around, uh, the burnt forests around uh, Los Angeles to get uh, samples and bring them back and scan them and, and ended up using some of that. Uh, terrible, terrible situation, but it inspired uh, the design quite heavily, as as did the sort of hazy atmosphere. And then, would you tell us about how you actually created this environment that would be then projected onto the uh, the LED wall? So uh, the the we're, we're using uh, uh, game engines to to uh, build virtual environments, which are used for design development based on Doug's concept art that uh, the team do up in San Francisco. And uh, we have a team in, in Los Angeles who are creating these virtual environments using uh, scans of real-world objects like trees and rocks and ground conditions and lit by our DP, Baz Idwine. And uh, then we go in and, and uh, scout, scout these with a camera and see if they're working as virtual environments. Um, once once you've got the whole environment created, the the sky sky psych, the the forest environment, for example, the ground condition, and you stage a scene in it, you kind of know what you're going to need to build uh, uh, inside the volume as a physical set, and you get more or less it's like a cookie cutter. You you stamp out of the virtual environment the part that's going to be a physical build, and then that goes to the set, traditional. Uh, crafts who are going to make make that physically based on renders from the game engine. Richard, do you want to jump in here and talk about the work of ILM? Yeah, so I think when the workers um, 
been approved, uh, that's been developed by Doug and, and Andrew Jones's production design team uh, and, and the art department, it ultimately gets turned over to ILM that then continue to advance those environments. Uh, in this particular instance, we took it from Unreal into ILM Stagecraft uh, toolset, uh, built out the environments even further. Um, they also kind of gathered scans, um, 3D scans and photography from various different landscapes to help uh, um, develop the, the environment. Uh, and I think what's, what's also important to remember is that when we're scouting these environments in, in virtual reality, you're, you're basically with a headset on, it's, it's 2K and it's 60 frames per second for performance reasons. Uh, but of course, when, when we hit the wall, it's got to be at least 24 frames per second and uh, largely a 50K image all the way around, depending on where you point the camera. So an awful lot of work is done in order to make sure that the, the, the scale stands up on the screen, even though uh, uh, it's not always obvious uh, um, looking at the before and after, what's being done. Basically, it's all getting supersized to go on the screen, so it basically stands up at any resolution with any lens we have in our in our kit. And of course, making sure that that when the the um, the physical sets come together with the LED wall in the background, that we have just as much control in the in the CG environment that we would have on set. So, if uh, if Baz and special effects want to increase the the atmosphere and the smoke in the physical set, we want to be able to dial the smoke in and out on the actual 3D content on the wall to make sure that there's a nice blend. So all of that uh, controllability needs to be built in and be on sliders on an iPad. So on the day, it's as quick and as efficient as possible so uh, uh, production can move as, as efficiently as they need to uh, while shooting in these spaces. And you used a new version of Stagecraft in this season. Would you describe the advances and what you were able to do in season two that maybe you weren't able to do during the first season? You know, there was there was an awful lot that, that, that changed from season one to season two. And, and I think almost all of it came from filmmaker requests, whether it was uh, um, uh, John or Dave, uh, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Andrew, uh, but also the DPs and, you know, the gaffer as well. Um so the first thing that was that was different for for season two was the scale of the the size of the volume was bigger, but then also the pixel resolution on the screen was was supersized. It was it was a great deal larger than season one, so uh, we could have much sharper images on screen. Uh, beyond that, we were shooting with two camera frustums, so two camera field of views, where we had control over which field of view overlapped the other if the camera uh, point of views crossed. Um, we had the ability to uh, um, color corrects the ceiling relative to the camera point of view as well. So we could increase the number of in-camera finals we would have um, because obviously the glancing angle of the ceiling is a different math problem to solve when color correcting that versus a, a, a vertical wall. Um, but, uh, but aside from that, there was many, many more uh, um, uh, improvements. We were able to individually select any rock, uh, um, any pebble on the ground or any tree in, in this particular environment and, and, and effectively move them around rather than selecting a section of a landscape and collecting everything as a as a baked mesh um, and again it was all to service the filmmakers through the experiences we had on on season one um, that that's really uh, uh, that was really the goal to make uh, the shooting as efficient as possible and as flexible as possible in addition to the forest um Doug and Andrew do you want to elaborate on the design for the interior of the city Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the fun things about it is we're always trying to push the technology as far as possible, you know, being guided by the story aesthetics. And one of the challenges that we had was that the castle itself, or the, uh, this fortress, was designed to have an outer part, a village part, and then an inner keep. 
And there was a really wonderful opportunity to distinguish the two aesthetically because um, Dave Filoni was insistent that the outer part really reflected sort of the poor living conditions of the uh, the villagers. And then the inner keep was going to be like this inner sanctum, which is almost like a paradise, you know, more of a garden feel. And one of the things that we really wanted to try was make it very much like a uh, pristine Japanese garden. We brought in water features. And this was something that, you know, Andrew and I were really keen on exploring, you know, how effective can we actually do this uh, in the volume? And in the end, you know, once we had the design of the set, um, it was a terrific matchup because the water gave you a real naturalistic reflection. And so a lot of those shots were done in camera that expanded the scope of what could have been built, but we really didn't build as much as, you know, what you see on the screen. And it turned out to be a terrific merging of the two, you know, aesthetically and technologically for, you know, to achieve sort of you know, Dave's vision on this. And part of, part of the benefit of this of the LED process for our our show is that our lead character is wearing very reflective silver armor so being able to reflect a 360 degree scenic environment is really important you know you're not getting blue screen spill you're you're basically just getting it in camera um, so the 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 step to to try using water and the reflection in water uh, was something we tried on this this episode. Uh, not sure how it was going to work, but it ended up working very well. And the experience of that has has kind of emboldened us to try more reflective surfaces and and use uh, water and and chrome and all all of the things that you would probably have difficulty on a blue screen stage doing. Mm-hmm. And um, Richard, on the character front, you obviously used more traditional puppet techniques with Grogu, but you also had CG characters throughout the season. Uh, would you like to talk about those? Yeah, and just going back to the uh, um, to the magistrate's uh, uh, courtyard a little bit, you know, in the background we had um, one of the droids there, and obviously on the day we have uh, we had a performer um, in a uh, half a costume, um, and obviously green spandex for the areas that would be replaced with with uh, a CG droid. And uh, you know, one of the nice things I think about uh, you know the experience that, that Doug has working in the Star Wars universe and and how uh, collaborative the show feels. Uh, across all departments, of course, is that that we all kind of get to uh, um, have a voice in how these visual effects are going to be achieved, but also, of course, you know what we would like to try and achieve practically on the day because that's really important for our show. Um, you know, we 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 really do uh, like to uh, try to recapture the charm of the original movies um, because I think that that you know when you look at Grogu itself. Uh, the character. The reason I think why the character is so successful is because it is a puppet, and I think uh, um, it, it's not something that 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 is uh, fully synthetic. People believe it's actually in the scene. He, uh, he's been picked up by by uh, all the different characters, and so for us in visual effects, when we do need to do a full CG version of Grogu, uh, we're always leveraging what's gone before us. We're always leveraging um, what we've seen the puppeteers do to try and perform the baby. Um, and that goes into the facial performance. We actually uh, took uh, um, the baby puppet and, along with the puppeteers, and we actually did a full 3D scan of the puppeteers performing uh, the facial motion and the movement of the baby um, in CG. So we effectively had a 3D representation of how the baby moved through all its range of motion. And then that was kind of baked into the animator's sliders when they're actually on the computer driving the animated version. So they can't actually make the baby, the CG baby, perform beyond the, the, the limitations of the actual puppet. And again, it's, it's, these are the lengths that we like to go to to try and make sure that we are maintaining the charm 
of, of kind of what's gone before. In, in addition to that character, maybe we could describe another one that uh, maybe is fully CG, like the dragon. Oh, the crate dragon. Worth talking about the design, right, Doug? <laughs> yeah. Now, the crate dragon was really, it, it was an interesting challenge because um, what's wonderful about the Mandalorian and John and Dave's approach is that we like to take obscure moments from the original trilogy and then really expand on them. Because if you think about it, our characters are really secondary characters. And so we had hints of what a crate dragon was in the bones that we saw in, in um, A New Hope. And it was very different. It was literally like a, you know, a Potosaurus um, skeleton. And the thinking there was, you know, there's been some design development uh, in terms of what that creature is. And it was always very small. And for John's storytelling, he wanted this creature to be big and to be huge as a menace, as a threat to the town of Mos Pelgo. And so we did a lot of research in, in terms of extrapolating, okay, what can it be so we don't break... Uh, what's been established before. And part of the logic was that the version that we saw in A New Hope was a baby. And so as it grows and as it matures, it actually grows quite big and it evolves quite a lot. And because our version was actually going to be underneath the sand, we had to come up with a logic of how does it maneuver underneath the sand? And the thinking was that it was going to be like a shark underneath the sand. And that drove the aesthetics where we started to evolve the head to give it a very shark-like silhouette. And this was very specific because we wanted to, you know, for this whole sequence, play it up like Jaws, uh, in, you know, the, like the shark in Jaws, where you saw peekaboo bits of it, and that kind of enhanced the drama of it. And so going with the motif of a shark-like nose, but then expanding on a scale to know that it could actually literally swim underneath the, underneath the sand, part of the other logic was, well, then how does it maneuver underneath the sand? And so we gave it legs. And some of the development art for early crate dragons that have been done, you know, quite a bit uh, in the wildlife books of Star Wars showed lakes, but we wanted ours to be even more. And again, part of the thinking was that this creature, as it matures, and we've never seen a fully mature version until now, is that the legs grow as the body grows. And so that gave us a perfect, you know, locomotion for this creature. And early on, we had done some previous development where that was going to be the the sort of how we reveal this creature is that you see literally all these legs underneath the sand. Ultimately, it became much more simplistic, but that really drove the design aesthetics. And so we did all the homework in terms of designing what a crate dragon should be and merged it perfectly, you know, or as best as we could with the story that John wanted to tell. Yeah, I think the, the challenge from a visual effects standpoint, and, and I think at this point I should point out that uh, uh, my colleague Joe Bao was the lead visual effects supervisor on that uh, uh, sequence. And obviously ILM was the the lead visual effects house. The, the challenge that the ILM had was that we did indeed have this, this fully developed creature underneath the sand. And even, even though in, in the majority of the shots, you just kind of saw the neck and the head, you had the full body, you had the full tail, and you had many, 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 many individual legs. Uh, but in many ways, it was incredibly helpful to, to have all of that design exploration from uh, Doug and his team, and obviously the writing and, and, and the very clear vision from John as to what he wanted to see because it meant as though we didn't really have to cheat anything. What we had to do is, is, to, uh, is to explore, once we had an animation cycle of this creature underneath the sand, how it was going to actually move the sand around. Because obviously what we're talking about is very complex fluid dynamics. And in water, it makes a lot more sense. But of course, uh, with, with sand, you're going to struggle with scale. And, and of course, in order to kind of have the sand move around 
uh, to allow the creature to kind of move through, the sand's going to move a great deal. And as soon as you start seeing that, then all of a sudden the scale feels really small. So it was always this back and forth challenge that the individual artists, the, 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 the simulators had to make sure that not only the sand movement felt realistic, but also as well, it had the scale and it had the scope and it wasn't betraying the designs and obviously the, 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 the creative that John had. So in order to, to emphasize that, whenever it breached, of course, we needed to make sure there was multiple layers of, 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 of different types of, of sand and, and different uh, particulate size kind of falling off, whether it was dust that kind of gave you the impression that it was, it was this, this, this huge thing to sand streaming off almost it, was, almost it was like water. So very, very complex uh, creature that was, uh, that was uh, um, you know, equally challenging for all the simulators and, uh, and of course all the composers after the fact to make sure that the scale really, really read. One thing that I, I think we we kind of have to bring up, of course, is the is the you know the terrible pandemic we've all been through and that we all continue to go through. And, and I think that uh, we were very fortunate that uh, we kind of we wrapped uh, uh, principal photography about a week before the the shelter in place orders kind of came out. But we, but from a visual effects standpoint, you know, we had you know fourteen vendors worldwide, and almost every single one of them all started moving uh, to to working from home in, in a very short space of time and, and i and i think it's it i think it goes without saying that, that we're incredibly grateful for all the work they were able to do you know during this difficult time because we we continued to meet our deadlines and the show came out on time but also on top of that we uh, uh in particular some of the challenges that ilm were faced in uh, in episode seven um we were uh we were intending to go to uh, to look on location to hawaii to photograph background plates establishing plates and and, and texture reference for the episode where we visit the jungle planet, uh, particularly for the sequence with the juggernaut that was over 250 visual effects shots. And very quickly, we had to we had to do an about turn and turn that entire sequence into a fully synthetic jungle environment. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges we had in post-production because it was something we weren't able to plan for. Um, but I think through the, you know, the wonderful work that the, the ILM did and uh, led by Enrico Dam, uh, and obviously the library of, of, of jungle reference that, that, that the ILM has, uh, they really turned what was going to be something that we were going to photograph into something CG that you really can't tell as, as, as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm really proud of the work that, that the teams did trying to, uh, trying to turn that around and really kind of uh, achieve the vision that, that Doug and Andrew kind of came up with initial designs. And, and to give everyone a sense of this, um, could you give us an estimate of how many, you know, quote, visual effect shots were in the season? Uh, we were, uh, we were uh, just shy of 4,000 visual effect shots. And I might add, I mean, one of the terrific um, experiences of working with John Farrow on this whole thing is that, you know, we're really trying to blur sort of all the department heads 
And that's partly driven by the schedule because we have such a short production schedule in terms of, you know, the production design of it all. And this is where it's great, you know, working with Richard and his team, we really try to bring all that work up front, you know, work that would typically be post-production work. We're bringing it up front because we need that content for the volume. And it really demands that everybody stay very focused in terms of how we collaborate. And what's really wonderful is that, you know, between Richard, myself, and Andrew, we work very collaboratively. And so once we get a design approved, once we take into virtual space, we start to implement and engage the ILM team to create final assets. And the only way we can do that is really, you know, allowing us to do virtual scouts very early on. So the minute John approves a set, we usually have a very preliminary CG model that we can literally start to, you know, scout in VR to see if the scale is right. And we get answers, you know, uh, days into the process versus months. And it's one way, you know, of really shortcutting, you know, the, the whole you know design challenge process in there because we can just be move more effectively. And we usually during those uh, virtual scouts, we bring in all the department heads, so everybody can kind of come in and, and have a voice, you know, like the DP to come in and say, you know, I, you know, the way you know Andrew and I had have designed a set, for instance, maybe one of the window volumes is in the way of a shot. Can we actually move it now? Versus discovering that after the fact, or even things like scale, you know, how far should the space be? Because we're always trying to be very conscious of our production schedule where we're trying to get the maximum impact for the least amount of builds. And sometimes we can still capture the original intent of the design, but minimizing the build without compromising the look. And it's something that, you know, Andrew and I, you know, work very closely with John and the other filmmakers to really go in and dissect, you know, what is the most effective way of doing all this? Yeah, I'd like to add to that just real quick. Uh, um, it's interesting because I've been asked on a number of occasions um, about the artwork at the end of the credits. And and people of us have assumed uh, in conversations that the artwork is done after the fact, after the show is finished, and we know what the show now looks like, which is not the case at all. All the artwork at the end of the credits that, that Doug Chang oversees with his team and Andrew, Andrew Jones, it's done in, in pre-production. So... Uh, you can see that the, that the show looks exactly how it was initially designed, and I, and I think that's that's testament to what to what Doug's saying. Uh, it's 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 rare that you're involved in a show on this size where you don't do several course corrections uh, um, as you get into post production. But again, because all of the, a lot of visual effects work is pulled at the pulled up at the beginning, but also because a lot of the the artists that Doug uses uh, are perhaps working on them for many years. And maybe they were, they were once modelers. There's such an interchange of those assets and those models and the way we work that all of those ideas really do exist and last right through the end of production. But it's also really a kind of testament to, to John and to, to Dave Filoni and the rest of the filmmakers in that we aren't changing our minds generally. If there's something that, that changes, it's because it's, it's out of necessity with, with, with the story. But but largely the design lives right from the very beginning all the way through post-production, which is rare, and I think allows us to kind of do the sort of volume of visual effect shots we're talking about in such a short space of time. And that's what makes everything sort of very fluid in that sense, because designs go back and forth, you know, all the way through, you know, shooting all the way through to post-production. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful way because, you know, obviously as the story comes together, as we get our first assembly of the cut, the story ideas may change, sets may change a little bit. And this gives us the freedom to actually massage those. And John is always insistent that, you know, sometimes if the set that was approved, you know, months ago prior to shooting, now he's seen it in the editorial, he wants to evolve it a little bit. You know, that's why we stay involved throughout the whole process, you know, doing paint overs, redesigns as necessary. And it's a really great back and forth. So really, there is no post-production or pre-production. It's all one big process now. 
Thank you all so much for joining us and congratulations on the season. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 